You may have a seat. As you guys are grabbing a seat, you can turn to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Uh, As you're turning there, I'll just let you know we are going to step outside of the connected series that our guys have been going through for a few reasons. Uh, The first is, uh, about last night at 5 p.m., Brian Fisher, who was going to be giving a message this morning on marriage, uh, let me know he was having the fever and chills. And so if you've ever wondered what your campus pastor does, I'm the relief pitcher that gets called in the ninth inning (laughs) and jumps into moments like this. Since baseball has started, I figured I'd give you a little baseball analogy. Also, I thought we'd jump into Song of Solomon because we just came off the heels of Valentine's, and so there's this moment in time in which you have all the hype, all the emphasis on romance, and at least what I've noticed is as much joy and as much fun as that is, right on the heels of romance, right on the heels often of all the buildup and the hype are missed expectations and conflict at times, right? In fact, if you know the story of Song of Solomon, the first four chapters really, in a sense, trace a couple's relationship as a song that has melody and message. Really, the message of the book of Song of Solomon is about their attraction, their pursuit, their relationship, even their intimacy, and it all questions cultural norms. It all looks in a unique way compared to what the rest of culture would have seen. But really, as we walk through this book of Song of Solomon, chapters 1, 2, 3, lead into 4, and ultimately into chapter 5, verse 1, that is the consummation, it is the building moment of climaxes to this couple's relationship as it's consummated and as it begins in a profound way. What's interesting to me about the book of Song of Songs is right after chapter 5, verse 1, that is this highlight celebration moment, comes chapter 5, verse 2, that is going to be the reality of conflict. You see, we're going to go in about one verse from the celebration of a honeymoon to the reality of conflict in chapter 5, verse 2. And whenever I jump into this book or whatever I think about chapter 5, one of the things I always think about is one of the first conflicts, we call them discussions in our marriage, that Marcy and I ever had on the backside of getting married. You see, we were in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport flying out to Maui. Life was good, all right? Uh, My parents were kind enough that they put us up first-class tickets all the way to Maui. So, I mean, life was going to be as good as it gets, all right? And we're there, and we decided, even though we're going to be in first class, even though there's a lot of food on the plane for us as privileged first-class residents, right? We're going to still get some food. And so we went up and ordered at McDonald's. And so we had this moment as a couple in which I said, hey, honey, what do you want? She told me, I'll just give me a burger and I'll have a few of your fries. And so we ordered. We sat down and I think you know where this is going. A few of my fries turned into a few more of my fries, which turned into half of my fries. And I knew early on in marriage, two things. Never, ever highlight that maybe your wife has eaten too much, right? Uh, That's never going to go good, all right? And second of all, you have to understand, I'm an only child, so anytime I play the, hey, that's my card, it has instant baggage, okay? And so I knew not to do that either. But there we were boarding, and here we were as she ate half of my fries, and I'm a bit peeved and frustrated because ultimately we ended and boarded, and I was hungry, right? Those were my fries. Those were the fries that I needed to be filled, and so if she wanted fries, could we have just not ordered the fries? I would have paid the $1.99, Right? Uh, And so here we were boarding a first-class flight to Maui, and we're a little bit at odds having one of these discussion moments that we would have later on as well. And one of the things I learned, P.S., kind of a public service announcement for you guys is, if, if, ladies, if you want something, just, we will order the extra one, all right? It's okay, all right? Uh, I know the calories seem to count less if it comes from our bowl, if it's ice cream or our serving, but just let us get it for you, it's fine, okay? And we'll have more relational harmony because of it. But one of the things I learned in that moment that I think we pick up in Song of Solomon as well is this, that even in the height of the greatest celebrations of marriage come the reality of conflict immediately often on the backside of it. 
How many of you celebrated Valentine's and had all kinds of expectations about it this weekend, only to find some of your expectations either weren't communicated or they weren't met, and so there was frustration, there was disappointment, there was conflict. One of the things I love about Song of Solomon is we're going to watch a couple whose relationship has been coursing and moving and growing, but what we're going to notice this morning, what we're going to spend some time on is not the building of their marriage or toward marriage, but we're going to look at how they handled conflict. And ultimately, I think we're going to see some patterns in their relationship even early on that I think are a beautiful model to us as to how we navigate conflict. I know Brian was going to give a message on marriage, and I think that what we're going to see from this couple can teach us something about marriage. But I want to submit to you all this morning that much of what we're going to see about this couple's relationship and how they handle conflict applies to every single one of us, no matter our life stage, no matter where we find ourselves. What we're going to see for them as they engage with one another will teach us that are married to one another. They'll teach us how to handle conflict in marriage. I think what we're going to see from this couple will also teach us how to handle conflict in any relationship that we find ourselves in. Whether that's your family dynamics that are fraught with conflict at times in your family of origin. Or whether it's even in a professional environment as you're working with coworkers in which conflict arises. Or for you college students, maybe it's your roommates that you're living with. That for every single one of us that live within realms of relationships, conflict is inevitable, is unavoidable. Especially if we're being real with one another and trying to really accomplish something with one another. So the question becomes, how do we navigate that? Whether we're married, whether we're single, in whatever life stage we find ourselves in, every single one of us experiences conflict. But I want to submit that for many of us, we have no idea how to handle it well. In fact, there are a series of pitfalls we're going to look at this morning that I think every single one of us has a tendency to fall into that we have to learn to avoid. For many of us, we came from families in which we saw conflict lived out and we saw conflict tried to be resolved in a way that what we remember walking away with was this. Whenever I face conflict, that's at least one thing I've learned as to what I'm not going to do, right? But for many of us, we never got a model as to what it would look like to do it well or to do it in a healthy manner. Even more so, I'd submit for some of us that have kids, uh, and thanks to Disney, I'm going to submit to you that a whole generation of kids is growing up as nothing more than they're going to become emotional terrorists because of conflict resolution patterns they've learned from songs and movies that they love, like Frozen, all right? Uh, You guys will remember from the movie Frozen way back when, the first one, we had the second one come out, but the first one had a famous song called Let It Go. Uh, I know that some of y'all have it blaze into your psyche in a way that brings pain to you. Um, But I want to bring it back because I want you to listen to it afresh from the angle of what is it teaching us and our kids about conflict resolution. Here's Let It Go. Some of you guys were singing along a little bit more responsibly than during worship, so I just want to highlight that. Some of y'all were singing a little bit sheepishly, like, I don't know if this is okay, but I love this, all right? So Elsa, Disney, Frozen, all right? I think it's raised up a generation of kids, mine included, that think that this is maybe how you handle conflict. Think about some of the lyrics, right? A kingdom of isolation, that's really healthy, right? Conceal, don't feel. All of our counselors are like, this is going to keep me in business for the rest of my life, all right? (laughs) 
Or how about this? My, spi- my soul is spiraling in frozen fractals all around. I don't care what they're going to say. Turn away and slam the door. Let, storm, let the storm rage on because the cold never bothered me. Holy moly, right? <laughs> You've sung the song 50 times. It's played 50 times in my house, right? As our kids were growing up in that young kid phase, right? Every one of us know frozen and know let it go. But I would argue to you guys that it's submitting a model for how we're to handle conflict that couldn't be more unhealthy and more counterproductive than how we're actually meant to engage with one another. It's cute and it's hilarious, but it's absolutely creating a pattern that is going to raise up a generation of emotional terrorists, okay? So that's where we're headed. Um, so, so what do we do? Where are we going to head this morning? Ultimately, what I want to do with you guys as we look at Song of Songs chapter 5 and chapter 6 is I want to show you, in a sense, four pitfalls to avoid in conflict and four behaviors to embrace. We're going to watch a couple. They're going to have conflict in chapter 5. We're going to see how they navigate it. We're going to see that they're going to avoid four classic pitfalls. And we're going to argue to you this morning that there's four behaviors that we're here to embrace with one another. We'll use Song of Solomon as a little bit of a jumping off text to highlight some of these pieces. But that's kind of where we're going to go and kind of what I want us to do. So we're going to pick it up. Chapter 5. Realizing we have a mixed audience, so we may have some kids. Chapter 5, verse 1, we'll call the celebration moment of the couple's relationship, all right? Uh, and chapter 5, verse 2, uh, is where we're going to see the first conflict that's going to arise on the back end of that romance and that celebration. Notice chapter 5, verse 2. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, this is a woman speaking, a voice, my beloved was knocking. And he said to me, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. A celebration have occurred in chapter 5, verse 1. And here the groom is showing back up and saying, how about another round of the celebration? All right. He's got a request. And notice how she responds in verse 3. I have taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved. So basically, he's making a request and she's going, I'm not really feeling it. All right. Uh, I'm thinking of the movie Date Night, and I think of uh, Steve Carell, Tina Fey, and uh, Steve Carell makes a request. Tina Fey says, uh, hold on, and she pulls her mouth guard out of her mouth, saliva everywhere, and says, let me get my mind around it, okay? Uh, essentially, verse 3 is tapping the brakes on the request of verse 2, and what we have here is conflict, okay? Verse 4, uh, they have a differing opinion. Verse 4, the guy is going to knock again very gently and kindly. He says, my, be- my beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open him to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. And I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. A request that's rebuffed, a request that's returned. But by the time that she responds to the secondary request, he's gone. Here you have this relationship that's been building for four chapters toward a height and a climax and a celebration. And just one verse later, we have uh, a crash, right? Just one verse later, we have conflict. And that conflict has created a fracture in the relationship. And now not only are they separate, but they're moving further in separation. And so the question becomes, since conflict is inevitable and conflict is unavoidable, how do we resolve it and how do we handle it when it inevitably arises? We're going to see the couple is going to navigate through this in a way that's going to be helpful to us and challenging to us as well. So four pitfalls to avoid. This is one I want to highlight for you. What are the pitfalls that they avoid and how does their model teach us? The first is, the first pitfall I want you to see that we're to avoid is the pitfall to flee. Now let me define it for you this way. Elsa, all right? Uh, or put it this way. Uh, the tendency to freeze people out by with your withdrawal and your avoidance. 
Some of your natural instinctual tendencies when conflict arises in relationships is to bolt and to take off, to get out of dodge. It gets hot, it gets uncomfortable, and so your response is, whoa, and withdrawal and avoidance. This is Elsa. Let me freeze them out, kingdom of isolation, okay? And ultimately what we see here in in Song of Solomon is the potential that one might think that there's a withdrawal and avoidance here, but it's not. Actually, I think the couple here navigated in a beautiful way with a beautiful tension because basically uh, the first moment that his request is rebuffed, he doesn't just get out of Dodge, right? He doesn't slam the door and just peace out forevermore, right? He, he comes back again, but then he retreats to create space for the person to process and to not feel pushed over and bowled over, right? That there's this tension between taking my toys and going home when I'm upset by you and creating space for someone to process and to navigate through that. I think for some of us, we are conflict avoiders, that we want to get out of dodge and take off as quickly as possible. And that's kind of how we handle conflict. And so to some of you, I want to say simply resist the desire to run away. Sometimes we run away because we think conflict is always bad, and it's not. Conflict is inevitable if we're living life out with one another in a real fashion and trying to actually accomplish something significant. If you and I live community and live relationships out in a way that is superficial, then it's easy to avoid conflict. But if we're not superficial, if we're authentic, if we're open, if we're vulnerable with one another, and if we actually live in a way that depends on one another, conflict will inevitably arise. Because we're different. We're all wired in different ways. We all want different things. And so at some point, conflict will occur. And for some of us, especially depending on the homes that we grew up in, we see conflict and we immediately go, red alert, red alert, this is a bad thing, bad thing. And one of the things I want to say as we start out this morning is that conflict is not bad. That it actually becomes the training ground to deepen our relationships, to build our commitment to one another. Because when you and I bolt and when you and I flee in the midst of conflict, it shows us two things. One is this, that we don't have the courage to face the conflict. And the second is that we don't have a commitment to the relationship to face the conflict either. Because when you bolt, it says, I'm too fearful to address this and to talk about it. And it also says, I'm actually not that committed to this relationship at all. Uh, There are a series of triggers. Blake Jennings talked last week about parenting. One of the triggers for me as a parent in our home is when our kids get sideways. And what I realized when we went from one kid to two kids is that parenting became more about refereeing than about parenting. Okay, Uh, And when they get sideways and one of them slams the door and retreats from the other, I just lose my, my mind. Okay, When doors start slamming, I get so frustrated. My dad, as I grew up, threatened that if, uh, that if I closed the door on them, he would remove the door he never did. I decided to do that as a parent, and I challenged my kids that if you slam doors, I'll take them off. And I took that door right off for my daughter, all right? <laughs> Put it squarely in the garage, took a picture, sent it to my dad, and said, here. And he, <laughs> and he goes, I threatened that for 20 years, but I never did it. That's going a little far, right? But there's just a trigger for me. There's something about slamming the door and walking away, taking my toys and going home that shows a lack of courage to face the conflict and to talk through it. And it shows a lack of commitment to the relationship in general. It's natural and it's expected for our kids. But if we're still doing that, means that we haven't matured as adults handling our conflict and finding a way to resolve them. How many of you are those that retreat and avoid and go silent and freeze people out? It's absolutely hurtful. It absolutely threatens the foundation of the relationship and it doesn't make any progress in the conflict and it undermines it entirely. 
For some of us, that's us. For some of us, one of the first things you need to hear this morning is that that tendency to flee is absolutely improper in the midst of conflict. But it's natural and we get it. Uh, Second thing I want to say to you, especially some of you that are college students, is that in the midst of conflict, part of your fleeing may be a communication that occurs through text, email, or social media. And what I want to say to you is that those are always words of people that are on the run away. For you college students, let me just be utterly clear. In the midst of conflict, you need to not result to text, email, or social media. You need to pick up a phone or you need to get in your car and show up face-to-face. That's increasingly more uncomfortable and increasingly less uh, uh, equipped for us uh, generation generation to do that. But especially in conflict, especially when it's gotten sideways, we don't text, we don't email, we We show up in person, we show up face-to-face, or we pick up a phone, because that's how we get through it, that's how we communicate through it. That when we result to these modes of communication, it's those of us that are communicating as those on the run away. So pick up a phone, get in the car, show up on the doorstep, show up face-to-face, and have a conversation with courage to handle it as it needs to be handled, because the relationship matters that much. Second pitfall, not just that we flee, but secondly, that we try to fix it, all right? Uh, I was thinking through uh, chapter 5. Notice uh, the, the husband makes a request in verse 2. Uh, uh, verse two uh, the wife says uh, a series of reasons why she can't fulfill the request or doesn't want to fulfill the request. I think it's interesting that uh, the guy, and this is typically more of a guy thing, I would argue, uh, he could have offered a series of solutions to fix the problem, right? Hey, well, let me get a mat out so that your feet don't get dirty, all right? right? He could provide a series of solutions to fix the issue, but that's not what he does. He gently makes the request again uh, with compassion and then eventually gives her space out of sensitivity. I think for some of us, we have a tendency to want to fix solutions or fix problems in the midst of our conflict, and we miss what the conflict really is about sometimes. Some of you guys have seen this video, but it's one of my favorites. And again, uh, don't fall into a stereotype of men and women necessarily just... Catch the point of the video. All right, here we go. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it. Like, literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. You do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is, and I'm not sleeping very well at all, and all my sweaters are snagged, I mean all of them. That sounds really hard. Thank you. Ow! Come on, if you would just... Don't! All right. I love that video because I think it surfaces something in so many of us, right? 
this tendency to want to provide a solution first before we ever actually connect about the struggle and the challenge that someone's feeling, all right? So for, for some of us, and I will stereotype to say maybe more of us men probably, all right, have a tendency in the midst of conflict to move to trying to fix the issue, provide a solution to a problem that we miss the relationship and we miss what it's really ultimately all about. And so if that's you, let me just challenge you to consider being one that would validate feelings first and then fix problems later, maybe, right? Maybe. But sometimes that's not what's necessary in the moment. That's not actually what the other person's looking for. And sometimes the quickness to try to provide a solution causes us to miss the person and miss the ultimate issue way more than anything else. And so for some of us, we fall into pitfalls that some of us try to flee. For those of us who aren't fleeing, we engage in the wrong kind of way, right? We engage in a way not to connect about what's a challenge and what's emotional, but we connect about a solution and trying to offer it. Because why? Because if I can get the solution fixed, then I can be no longer inconvenienced by the struggle here, right? That's sometimes what's going on. For some of us, I think we have a tendency to flee. We have a tendency to fix. And thirdly, for some of us, we have a tendency to fume, all right? One of the things I love about this couple that we're going to see in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that uh, we're going to see that they're not those who fume because here's why. I think our tendency to fume will always be evidenced by our tendency to fault find in the other person. Let me say that again. Our tendency to fume in the midst of conflicts relationally is always seen in evidence by our tendency to fault find about the other person. One of the things that I love here in chapter 5 and chapter 6 in the midst of this couple's conflict is we're going to see they are still going to end up praising one another in public even in the midst of their conflict, even before it's resolved. That their tendency, even openly in public, is going to be to exalt and honor the other person and not fault find and not shame them. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, Business Journal was done uh, by a guy named John Gottman who did 40 years of research on thousands of couples. And here's what he found. He classified couples, whether they were divorced or not, he classified couples into two different uh, kinds of couples. Those that were masters and those that were disasters, all right? I like the word play, all right? Um, But here's what he said about the distinction between them. He said, there's a habit of mind that the masters have, uh, that they are scanning social environment for things that that they can appreciate and say thank you for. They're building a culture of respect and appreciation very purposely. Disasters are scanning for their partner's mistakes. That in the midst of conflict, in the midst of being frustrated with one another, are you more likely to find yourself willing to even openly and publicly honor and encourage and affirm the person for their strengths? Or do you find yourself both personally, individually, privately, and even publicly fault-finding the person in the midst of the conflict? It's fascinating. One of the things for me, being married to my wife, that is the most phenomenal about her is that she has an amazing ability to look back on the past with a rosy set of glasses, typically, uh, which means I could have been an idiot the night before and said something incredibly hurtful, but by the next morning, she just doesn't remember, Okay. So I remember early on in marriage, I'd say, honey, I'm so sorry for our conversation last night. And she'd say, what conversation? I'd say, I don't remember. Like, (laughs) yeah, what conversation, right? Let me not remind you how I was an idiot, okay? And so, but one of the things I found even for us in the midst of the fact that she often doesn't remember is that I have now less likely tendency to want to store up and file away her transgressions. Why? Because I don't have to bring them up because I'm not going to get into a tit-for-tat kind of deal. She can't remember, so she's not going to roll them out. So why do I need to roll them out? Because we're not going to have this, in a sense, amassing of arms and escalation. 
The couples that have a tendency to fault find, that have a tendency to move toward the negative, toward shame, are the couples that have more of a tendency to fume. And it's not just couples. In the midst of any relationship we have, in the midst of any friendship or family we have, in the midst of any roommate relationship, the people that have a tendency to fault find and lead toward shame are the people that often have the greatest difficulty to resolve conflict in a fruitful, healthy, reconciling way. In the midst of your conflicts, in the midst of when you get sideways with family, with friends, roommates, or a spouse, or kids, what is your tendency? Which way do you go? Do you fault find, or do you openly, publicly proclaim and honor? Once you see what this couple does, even in the midst of their conflict, even when it's not ultimately resolved. I want you guys to pick it up uh, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 5. They haven't ultimately resolved it, and she's looking for her groom, and she's out in the public square, and she says to the public, she says, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates, and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, uh, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies. Please never say that to me, honey. Um, Dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. You can say that to me later. Um, (laughs) But what I love about what what she does here is that even in the midst of an unresolved conflict, she's out in the public square praising him honoring him in front of others, even in the midst of a conflict that she has personally and privately where no one else knows. Why? Because they were the kinds of people that tended toward the ability to proclaim open praise and not open shame in front of other people. If you're married and you have a tendency to complain about your spouse to your mom and dad, watch out. Watch out. Mom and dads have a hard time reconciling and processing through that. That's incredibly unhealthy. But for some of us, even in the midst of our Christian circles, in the midst of prayer requests, in the midst of gossip, we have a tendency to highlight other people's failures for prayer, right? So that we know how to discern and navigate through it. Be really careful. In the midst of our conflict, our ability to openly uh, provide appreciation and acclaim provides us a greater tendency to avoid the pitfall of fume. And here's why I think it's so significant. I've shared this quote before, but I think it's one of my favorites. Frederick Buechner said this, that of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick over wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last tooth of morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton of the feast is you. In the midst of our conflicts, in the midst of the pain, the frustrations, the injustices that we've experienced, it's absolutely normal for us to struggle, to be frustrated, uh, to roll over how we've been wrong, why we've been wrong, how someone else has done it all to us. That's natural and that's normal. There's a place for that, right? That's, that's, you can't just erase all that. But the tendency to get stuck there and to continue to play that tape over and over again to continue to live in that cycle of anger ultimately isn't going to actually do anything for you personally. And in the midst of a relationship, not only is it ultimately going to consume you, but it's going to consume the relationship itself. It's a pitfall to avoid. And if we get stuck in it, ultimately we suffer and the relationship suffers as well. Three pitfalls so far. And the fourth one is that we have a tendency to fight. I think there's a healthy way to fight and a good way to fight. But what I mean here is that when you and I fume, 
when we slowly burn and kind of spin in the cycle of anger, eventually that fume lits a match and eventually we escalate and we explode. And again, that's not what the couple does here. But for some of us, we fight hot. For some of us, we run hot. And when we get in a conflict, especially with someone else that might run hot, it can have a greater tendency to escalate, to escalate, to build, to build, and then boom, an explosion that takes us down and leaves a crater where the relationship once was. That there has to be ways for you and I, if we are these kinds of people that fume, that lead to a match that's lit, that it escalates and it begins to burn, that we have to find ways to de-escalate. We're going to talk about four behaviors here to embrace in a minute. Um that I think are ways that we de-escalate in the midst of a conflict. For some of us who run hot, for some of us that uh, work up pretty fast, we have to find ways to begin to de-escalate that because as it escalates, as it ramps up, as we get ramped up and amped up, all of a sudden it's like a race of arms and what was a knife fight becomes a nuclear uh, warship that's taking off, right? Uh, And all of a sudden we're going to have a crater where the relationship once was and it's not healthy and it's not productive. So how do we de-escalate in a healthy way, and begin to think about behaviors to embrace. The last thing I was going to say here is I was thinking even about myself. Uh, both Marcy and I are high harmony people, so we want to get to harmony pretty fast. One of the things that I do in the midst of conflict, I need another F, I didn't put it up here, but I'll just confess to you guys, I think for me one of the ways that I handle conflict is to fluff or to find humor to de-escalate things, and sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's incredibly risky. So one of the first moments that we were married, I decided to do this where we were having another discussion. And I decided in the midst of the moment, as it reached its critical moment, I reached my finger across and, and pressed her lips. And I said, no fighting, just loving. All right. It actually, in that moment, de-escalated it. But it was incredibly a little high wire act, right? <laughs> I shared this uh, to one of our Cultivate groups last week. And they're like, I would have just slapped you right, if I was your wife. I was like, I know, I was, I was kind of either going to be an all win or an all loss kind of moment, all right? But I think for some of us, we have a tendency to use humor to de-escalate, which can be helpful. But if you're a little bit like me and you to have a tendency to do that, just realize that's incredibly risky as well. Because it can cause a person to not feel heard, to not feel valued in the midst of our humor uh, in which we're trying to de-escalate things, but it can also cause a miss that actually can escalate it. So be careful if you're a guy that, or a woman that likes to use humor in the midst of those places. So if we want to de-escalate, if we want to avoid these pitfalls, then for those of y'all who fight hot, and the last thing I'd say is think long. Speak slow and watch for the triggers. Uh, If you're fuming, if it's building, then slow down. Take another moment to think it through. Uh, uh, Slow down as you let it out. Don't let it just fire off. And then one of the things I've kind of realized over time is that there are certain triggers for one another in the midst of our relationships. And part of what we do in ensuring that we don't escalate it is that we try to, in loving compassion and self-control, avoid those triggers for the other person as we learn what they are over time. Sometimes if there's a surprise to us, sometimes we begin to find out what those are. And then it becomes our loving self-control to avoid them and to not press the button and see the explosion every time, right? So what are the four behaviors to embrace? Where do we go from here? What does the couple teach us? The last thing I'd say is, is just for you, before we jump to those four behaviors, is this. Which pitfall is yours? I want to challenge you to take some time this afternoon thinking through, hey, uh, what, what is my tendency in the midst of a relational conflict that arises? Maybe that's maritally. Maybe that's professionally. Maybe that's in the midst of roommates and friendships. Maybe that's my family of origin. Often we are different people in each of these spheres, And so what is the pitfall that I find myself often falling in in each of those spheres? Can you identify it? If you're honestly going, I'm not 100% sure, then I would challenge you. If you feel risky enough and have the courage to do it, ask someone in those spheres, what's your pitfall? 
Because I guarantee you they know it, right? I guarantee you they could help you come to some self-awareness, all right? Uh, it takes some courage to do that. It takes a, a person that you feel safe enough to do it. But I think it's incredibly helpful if you're not sure. Uh, for some of us that have kind of been through so many things before, that for many of us we can quickly identify and say, this one's me or that one's me. And so I think it's helpful for you to figure that out first. Here's a kind of a quick definition of them. Uh, and then begin to think about, all right, now what behaviors ought we to embrace and where do we go from here? Behaviors to embrace. First, confess your sin. If relationships are a dance and conflict is someone stepping on your toe, one of the things I realized early on in the midst of marriage or in the midst of relationships was often someone was stepping on my toe. They got completely out of rhythm and it was seemingly, in my mind, their fault. One of the things I quickly learned in the midst of relationships was sometimes I had done something prior that caused them to get out of rhythm in which they then stepped on my toe. And all I saw in the moment was them stepping on my toe. But as I took a little bit of time and took a little bit of humility to step back and to think about it and to listen, what I learned was I had done something prior that triggered something in them in which they caused them to step on my toe. That often as we dance and as we step on one another or as we walk in relationships and conflict emerges, that often what we see is what someone's done to us. But what we need to have some time and reflection and humility to begin to realize is that sometimes we've contributed to the environment and then to the relationship in such a way that it actually could be partially our fault as well. That it's never just one person's fault. In most relationships, it's almost never one person's fault. That there's a contributing set of factors that are all at play, which means it's likely that I have some sin to confess. That one of the first behaviors I have to embrace in the midst of conflicts I experience is that there has to be probably some sin, some weakness that I need to clarify and own as I begin to engage in this conflict. Uh, clear passage that's familiar to a lot of us is this Matthew chapter 7 verses 4 and 5 how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log is in your own eye you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye Uh, this passage is really familiar to a lot of us we could quote it ourselves but I wanted to underline a section I think is really helpful here that notices when is it that you can see clearly enough to engage in the conflict in the most reconciling and transformative way after you've dealt with the log that is in your own eye, right? That until that, we're just flying blind in it, to be perfectly honest. That we actually can't see, because when conflict emerges, it's like dirt in a glass that's shaken up, and we're trying to figure out how to navigate, but until we confess our sin, that dirt's not coming down for us to see more clearly as to what's going on. So one of the first steps for us in the midst of our conflicts, in the midst of the relationships that are stressed and set apart or or wrestling through conflict is that you and I have to find what is our weakness, what is our sin that we confess, that we have to own. And then the second step we take is that we begin to then forgive their sin. We confess our sin and then we forgive their sin before we even engage with them. It's absolutely critical for us as we navigate through conflict, as we navigate in relationships with one another when conflict has emerged, that we first confess our sin and then we forgive their sin. I love this passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 19. It says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So what does it actually mean to forgive? What does it actually mean if we were to redo Frozen Song, Let It Go? What does it actually mean for us to let it go? 
Here's what I think it means as we think about that biblical concept of forgiveness. The biblical concept of uh, forgiving someone for their transgression is that we let the judgment and the vengeance that is to become on someone's sin, let it be handled by someone else, particularly by God, right? That ultimately for us, that we recognize as we forgive that we are not the judge and we are not the jury for that person. That that is God's job, and so we let go, handing the vengeance and the reconciliation and that which is to be correction to the Lord himself, and we don't handle it ourselves, that we pass it off and say, Lord, I know you got it. And if we can own our sin, and if we can genuinely let vengeance and justice be meted out by the Lord himself, then all of a sudden now we begin to engage in the midst of conflict with someone in a very different position, needing something very different in the relationship. One of the things I loved here in this passage and why I wanted to underline it as well is so far as it depends on you. Meaning in the midst of a conflict, there are certain things that we can do. But the ultimate reconciliation of it, the ultimate opportunity and hope that it gets just a place that's even better and stronger is not something that we can control even if we do all the right things. That we can do our part, but the other person has to do a part as well and we can't control whether they do that or not. I bring that up just to say is in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the relationships that you're walking through or that you've walked through or that you're still in, sometimes there's this great tension, this great stress as to how do we get it fixed and how do we get it repaired and how do we get it back to the best place it needs to be. And sometimes I think we wait a pressure and a, and a stress on ourselves that we're not meant to carry because ultimately we can only do so much and some of it's up to the other person. We can go so far in it but ultimately, the other person has to meet us and move towards us as well. And so first, we uh, confess our sin. Second of all, we forgive their sin. And then thirdly, uh, we communicate in grace and truth. But only once we've dealt with our issue and ultimately let the Lord handle their issue. Then we move and we communicate in grace and in truth. With a gentleness and a kindness, but not a gentleness and kindness that hides the issue or doesn't actually communicate in honesty. And we also don't communicate in brutal honesty in a way that doesn't bring grace and kindness along with it. There's this blend that Jesus Christ is the perfect balance of, full of grace and full of truth that we often struggle to do perfectly together well, right? For some of us, we fall on the grace side and we never get the truth out there. For some of us, we fall on the truth side and there's not a lot of grace or love attached to it as well. And it fractures and it makes, it, makes the com- conversation harder to manage and to move through in a fruitful way. Ultimately, the couple is going to communicate, they're going to work through it, and they're going to land in a place where they're going to ultimately see a reconciliation and a repair. Chapter 6 will unfold as they're going to end up meeting back up together. And what I love is, as the bride says, notice um, chapter 6, pick it up in uh, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12, actually, excuse me, verse 13, she says, Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite? as at the dance of the two companies. Essentially, there's a reception, and she's saying, please come back. She's trying to bring a repair. She's trying to bring a reconciliation and a meeting back together of the distance that had been separated. She's trying to bring it back. Of the break that had been caused, she's trying to heal it and heal the divide. The ultimate what we see at the end of the chapter as the story unfolds is that they're going to repair the divide and reconciliation will come about. But it only comes about for you and I as we first deal with our sin, as we forgive their sin, as we actually then step in and we communicate, that there's no reconciliation without communication, right? That when we don't communicate, that's a form of fleeing and avoiding, right? 
that actually to actually repair it, we've got to communicate, we've got to begin a process, and then hear the other person in the midst of that as well, that they would have a chance to communicate. In the midst of that, then we begin to get into a place where there's an opportunity for reconciliation, there's an opportunity for repair, and the divide is mended, and the relationship ends up stronger than it was before. You know, I, I think for many of us, uh, relationships inevitably lead to conflict, but as I think about most of our lives and most of the challenges that I see, it's often to this issue that we don't know how to handle conflict well. We didn't see it patterned well. We've not seen the healthy models of it. And as we go from one generation to the next, the challenges and the changes toward the difficulty to communicate get different, uh, and they change on us as well. And if we don't learn to do this, it's going to struggle for us in the midst of marriages that we're going to have one day. Or we're going to struggle in the midst of relationships we're going to have with kids one day. If we don't figure out how to handle this, we're going to begin to just rotate through friendships because we can't handle conflict. I remember watching several friends in the midst of college that would just churn through friends. Everything would be good until a conflict would occur, but it wasn't resolved, it wasn't dealt with, so we would just change out friends until the next conflict would occur, and then we would just change out friends, right? That if you find yourself in a continual rotating group of friendships, then it's maybe that the issue is that you don't know how to handle conflict and deal with it. Either you want to run, or that you're navigating through it in ways that actually don't bring repair, don't bring reconciliation. And the last thing I want to say as we wrap up is, uh, the ultimate, I think some of these ideas are fruitful and they're helpful in the midst of conflicts that are shallow to medium level. I think for some of us, the reality is we find ourselves in conflicts that are not shallow to medium level. That they're incredibly deep, incredibly layered, incredibly thorny. And, and for some of you, if you find yourselves navigating through conflicts, navigating through relationships, and frankly, you keep falling into pitfalls that you can't get out of, and it seems unavoidable to navigate or to avoid that tendency to trip and to move in a certain direction. Or if you find you just get stuck and you figure out, I just can't, I can't seem to navigate through these different ones for some rhyme or reason. One of the things I'd say is that there are times in each of our lives that there become layers or there become things that have happened to us that are so layered, that are so deep, that frankly, uh, frankly getting a professional counselor is incredibly helpful for us to begin to unpack the layers. And so if you're here this morning and you're navigating through some relationships or you're navigating through some situations, maybe it's family, maybe it's a peer, maybe it's a spouse, and the reality is the layers are so complicated and it's so tangled that you just can't seem, no matter the effort, no matter the desire, to begin to untangle that, then it's incredibly good to get some help, to get someone else to step in, begin to help you to begin to think through why is it so tangled? What's happened and how do you begin to pull one layer back after another to begin to slowly but surely untangle that? Sometimes friends are incredibly helpful. Sometimes spouses are incredibly helpful. But sometimes it hits places and it hits levels. That seeing a counselor to begin to unpack some of those things is incredibly helpful and incredibly necessary because sometimes we just can't untangle it ourselves and we need some help and we need someone professionally to begin to help us unpack why we're struggling and why we keep falling in some pitfalls and why we can't embrace these behaviors that seem natural, that seem wise, that seem helpful, but we just can't get there. Why? Sometimes a counselor can really help us begin to unpack that. So my hope this morning, whether we are married or whether we're in whatever set of relationships we're in, is that we're thinking through in the midst of the conflicts that we're in, how do we begin to navigate them? What's the pitfall that you need to avoid? And what's one key behavior that you need this week to begin to think about embracing in a new level? If you can walk out this morning going, I got one pitfall to put my eyes on and one behavior to put my eyes on, then for me, I feel like that's a great sense of what the Lord is doing and hopefully his spirit is moving. So let me pray for us and wrap this up. 
Lord, I thank you that in the midst of our Savior's experience, conflict came um, of no fault of his own. And his, there was a willingness in him to stand in the midst of it, to suffer through it, of no doing of his own, but to gladly and willingly lay his life down. And so, Lord, I pray in the midst of some conflicts that some of us are walking through or continue to walk through, whether it's from our family or whether it's from relationships or spouses or whatever, Lord, that uh, it leads fra- to um, fractures and it leads to hurts uh, that are deep and wounds that are significant. Lord, I pray that you would, in the midst of those places, help us to remember that Christ is so acquainted and so familiar with sorrows and with grief, that, that we're not alone, that he not only does he get it, he gets it at a level that we may never get it. And so, Lord, I pray in the midst of those places that we would see your son, Jesus Christ, who not only is acquainted with those things, but died for us. To forgive us of our sins, to restore us, not just to relationship with him, but to provide us a model and a means for how we navigate relationships as well. To be able to extend into relationships that which we don't have to have because of the relationship that we have with Christ. And I pray for us as believers, as we step into our families afresh, as we step into our workplaces, as we step into roommate relationships, Lord, I pray that as people of God, that have experienced the forgiveness of God, that you would allow us to navigate through these moments and these situations entirely uniquely different. With compassion, with wisdom, with humility, willing to lay our lives down, willing to suffer, willing to struggle, willing to lay down our rights at times, not to a level that we don't communicate, Lord, but willing to navigate through that, holding in and hanging in and being open and being honest and committed to relationships for their growth and for their betterment. Lord, I pray that you teach us. I pray you give us even moments this afternoon as we process and as we think, Lord, helping us identify whether conflicts we've had this week or ones that we're going to have tomorrow. Where do we go when conflict arises? Where do we go when the heat picks up? What is it we need to process and think afresh about? And then ultimately, what are some of the behaviors that we begin, need to begin to address in a new way and in a new order and a new progression? I pray that as people of God that you would allow us to walk in the midst of conflicts with a humility that, is, um, that isn't of this world. That you would allow us to ex- exude and ex- extend grace and kindness in a way that looks entirely different. I pray too, Lord, that you would give us the courage to be direct, the courage to be straightforward, to communicate in open and honesty as to what's going on, Lord. That we would have the courage to reveal, the courage to be vulnerable, the courage to communicate, but to do it with grace, to do it with kindness. And I pray, Lord, that you would slowly but surely allow us to be the kinds of men and women that begin to see repair in relationships, that begin to see relationships mended in new ways. Lord, teach us, guide us, give us a sense of what you have for us. And Lord, for some of us in the midst of those relationships that uh, can't seem to get unstuck or in the midst of moments and pitfalls or behaviors that we just can't seem to grab, Lord, that there's just layers that are so incredibly deep and layered and complicated that we just can't find our way out. Lord, I pray that you help us to get help. I pray that your spirit would guide us. I pray that you would give us counsel uh, and help us begin to unpack what's going on. Lord, we love you and we need you. I'm grateful that you've made us ministers and ambassadors of your love, of your kindness, of reconciliation. And I pray that you allow us to be that as we go out today. Lord, we ask for these things through your son and by your spirit we pray. Amen. Church, you guys have a great Sunday. We'll see you all next week.